This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... When Games Break. Canada's Drunk Food Gap. Building Out Our Mythos Deity. And The Philip Experiment. Ken, do you know anything about kitties? I might. But do you know about magical kitties? I know everything. Everything about Magical Kitties Save the Day, a new RPG for gamers of all ages. But, you know, young ones in particular. A perfect intro to the hobby. You mean perfect? I do not. Like the title says, you're Magical Kitties. Every Magical Kitty has a human. Every human has a problem. In Magical Kitties Save the Day, you use your magical powers to solve problems and... Save the day! You all live in a hometown that's filled with foes like witches, aliens, and hyper-intelligent raccoons. They make human problems worse, so the kitties go on adventures to stop them and help the humans. The super simple but elegant rule system puts the emphasis on storytelling and puts the dice in the players' hands, not the GM's. And it supports a setting and characters that players are familiar with and love from the start. When you open the box for Magical Kitties Save the Day, sitting right on top is a copy of Magical Kitties and the Big Adventure. A play graphic novel adventure. Within moments of opening it, kiddos can create their magical kitty and go on an amazing adventure that also teaches them how to play the game. Run Magical Kitties Save the Day for kids as young as six years old. And for everyone else who loves kitties. A great game for kids to start running on their own with plenty of tools and guidance for first-time GM. If you've been looking for a way to introduce your friends and family to role-playing games, Magical Kitties Save the Day is the perfect game to do it. Do you mean perfect? I also do not. Pick up your copy at atlas-games.com. You are cute. You are cunning. You are fierce. You are magical kitties, and it's time to save the day. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the friendly confines of the gaming hut. Where, well, uh, I just need to work out some house rules, Robin, if you give me two seconds. And also, none of these monsters work. And also, I need your character sheet back. Uh, Because (laughs) we are dealing with a phenomenon identified by us, I think, repeatedly in the axes segments of the Gaming Hut, prompting Ludovic Shabbat, beloved Patreon backer, to ask what people, and I suspect by people, he means Ken and Robin, mean when they say that a game breaks. And Robin, I think that it's one of those terms that seems pretty clear, but we can use a little specificity at the behest of beloved Patreon backer Ludovic Chabon. So give us the first layer. And Ludovic, of course, means achieves victory while playing games. So the also... Not only uh, beloved, but the the best name, the thematically, nimically apropos. Yes, yes. And I think it's not just that Ken and Robin use the word breaks, but I think it's a a common term that we want to nail down. And this is when we enter. Speaking of axes, we're danger kind of identifying another axes. Oh damn it! uh, Because when a game breaks, think most often hear that when it is a game that has a a power arc. Uh, where you're expected to play for a period of time and your characters increase in power and at a certain point in that arc, it turns out that the rules don't work quite so well for 
a certain segment of that. And, and famously, F20 not only has the uh, longest power curve, but also notoriously a sweet spot where it, it's kind of gnarly in the first few uh, levels. And then it's really great between sort of the mid-level. And then it starts to become rockier and, and harder to operate uh, at higher levels. And where exactly those breakpoints if you will, occur, sort of differ from edition to edition. You know, the Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, the first edition, the first chunk is very gnarly, where there's yeah. a high die-off rate. And then uh, it was figured out, oh, maybe we should give them a few more starting yeah. hit points. Which, maybe again, is, is, is more part of the design in, in that sense. I, I feel like, you know, if the game is meant to kill out, you know, at least half the characters, well, it does that. Whether that's a good thing for it to mean to, obviously, is the thing that D&D's design teams ever since have said, no, we don't think it is. But, you know, right. you can't well, argue that a it's... a lot of people said, I think, to themselves at their gaming tables, hey, this is kind of broken. <laughs> so, uh, and that gets to a separate point, which I guess we should put a pin in, which is that sometimes elements of a game can break. Uh, rather than the whole Shebang. game breaking. But yep. before we get to that, do you think I'm in the general right ballpark of what we're talking about here? I think you're in the general right ballpark, but I think it's rather than a negative play experience or a less fun play experience or even a less smooth play experience, I feel like when you say that a game breaks, you're implying that it just no longer functions as a game in the sense either that there's no challenge left the player characters just romp and it becomes an exercise in shoveling treasure and increasingly ridiculous monsters into the table and hoping that things go well, or the math no longer works. And what was intended to be a challenge, let's say a 50, 50 challenge suddenly becomes a, a, a challenge that either you have to have a superhuman knowledge of the rules to play through or that just simply can't really be met. I think more games in the F20 model broke the old way in that it simply stopped being a game for the GM and a challenge for the players than did the other way in which, oh, suddenly nothing works at all. And I feel like you have to sort of, as you say, look at power curve games that more often, you know, break in play in that way. Because if a game is broken from the jump, then in theory, it doesn't get out there. Or if it does, you don't say that the game is, you know, breaks. You say the game is broken or is just terrible. And, you know, never even bother to worry about, you know, well, what happens at Phoenix Command at high levels? It's like no one has ever played it at high levels. It doesn't matter. So the the issue of breaking, I, I feel like, is not just a bumpier, juddery ride, which I think you could write off to, well, it's a power curve. There's going to be a sweet spot. That's how math works into a no, this literally does not do what it says on the box it's supposed to do anymore. Right. Yeah. So there are games that are so broken that nobody plays them and therefore nobody talks about them. Mm -hmm. And so th I guess we're getting into the, the fine distinction between is broken, meaning sucks at all levels of the power <laughs> curve and a game that breaks, which implies that it works for a little while and then it doesn't. Mm -hmm. And so obviously pretty much from the designer's point of view, every designer who's created a new brand new game with a new resolution system, uh, rather than just, you know, adapting an existing one, has had the experience of having their game break immediately <laughs> the first time they yeah. try to run it. It just means, oh, it's non-functional. And uh, as you imply, there are some weird cases where that game makes it to publication. <laughs> and uh, how that happens 
is a mystery that even I cannot shed light on. But I think what we're talking about mostly here is it, it works until it doesn't. And there's different ways a game can break too. So older editions of RuneQuest, after you reached a certain level, there wasn't a great solution to what happens when your percentile die skill goes above 100. Yeah. And so it's sort of implied that you can go on and become a vastly powerful uh, sort of demigod, but the game really only works when you're sort of scrounging for armor parts in the wilderness and then kind of get competent. And then after that, it's not that the every fight becomes a walkover, but just that the mechanics become clunkily unmanageable and it doesn't feel... Uh, it, it feels harder to be powerful in older versions of RuneQuest than it did to feel sort of mid-range. Mm -hmm. So that's a, a different kind of, of breaking where it just becomes unmanageable and less fun and it just doesn't feel right. So having defined this, I guess the question is, why do games break rather than just being you know broken from the get-go? And the reason is that anything with a long power curve, your ability to playtest that game before you publish it is much different than the ability of people to eventually play the hell out of it and get to the end of the power curve. So you often find that uh, games surprisingly work best at the level they were playtested at. <laughs> and then the challenges of the math, whether it's that the or the availability of crunchy bits, right? One of the reasons that F20 games seem to uh, break at higher levels is just that the characters have access to so many uh, plot-breaking powers. So it may just be that certain uh, crunchy bits are uh, problematic rather than just the, the resolution system math being uh, hard to handle. And yeah. you can certainly have, even in other games, like in, in customizable card games, there are ones that are deemed to be broken because certain cards are introduced. Right. That then This ha also happens in F20 games and other games that have classes or the equivalent because, again, there's not as easy a way to playtest the Cavalier through every single iteration. What happens is someone looks at the Ranger and says, eh, make him a 20% sortier and we'll call him the Cavalier and it's good. And then eventually people play the Cavalier and they say, oh, this character class is broken. And generally what that means is either the character class is ridiculously underpowered for the table or ridiculously overpowered for the table. They seldom mean that only in the case of the Cavalier, the math doesn't work. What they mean is it does not function as part of the game, which is not quite the same thing, but people do use the term broken for classes, for power suites. Uh, I've heard it used for playbooks in some Powered by the Apocalypse games. Oh, don't use that playbook. It's broken. Or often I've heard it from designers. They say, oh, well, I'm trying to do this, but these two examples, usually the high powered ones are broken and I can't figure out how to unbreak them. And so you wind up sort of constrained. I mean, if you're a conscientious game designer, you wind up constrained by the fact that some things just can't be introduced into the game system that you want to play them in uh, without either becoming too abstract or literally breaking the game for somebody, whether that be all the other players at the table as they sit there and say, ah, another Cavalier, eh? Or whether it's the poor guy who thought, well, this would be a fun class to play and discovers, oh, no, it is not ever a fun class to play because it just doesn't have enough options of action or its power system is so off the beam that nothing else in the game really attaches to it. And you might as well be playing your own game over in a corner somewhere. Right. So there, there are different ways that things can break. One, the 
one character is too overpowered and that player then dominates play. It can be broken in the way of being uh, uh, sort of useless. And then that means that your your one player is disappointed and, and mad that their cat ninja doesn't get to do either cat or ninja things. And doing those things is uh, not effective. Uh, there is manageability. There are some spells or other crunchy bits that I understand were introduced into uh, a late Pathfinder one that had like cosines in them, <laughs> complex equations. Ah, uh, someone, someone's a GURPS fan. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And of course, there is a possibility suggested by that, that a game can function relatively well throughout its power curve at first. And then as you introduce crunchy bits from new supplements, especially ones that are extra powerful so everybody takes them, you can break something under the load of its own weight. And it may just be that there are too many things. The players have too many choices and they don't know what to pick or how to design their characters. Or that there are sort of a new crunchy bit basically becomes an invasive species and destroys the rest of its ecological niche. Right. And uh, again, that's a function of, uh, you know, Things introduced later often get insufficient, <coughs> no playtesting. Yeah. And uh, a lot of that is just that it's, you know, it's impossible to playtest every combination if you've got a game that's classes and levels of all classes and levels, because you couldn't have done that re- regardless of your playtesting time. I mean, famously, a uh, fifth edition of Dungeons and Dragons had, I think, a year's playtest. It had 10,000 playtesters. And within a year, there was a little book of errata out there that says, oh, well, look at that. That's broken. Don't do that. So it's just, you know, the nature of the beast in a way. And that's sort of, I don't say the downside, but it's a danger of the fact that this art form is so uniquely collaborative, modular, and individualized, right? Um, you, you can't say, oh, that you know, that painting is broken. You can say it's ugly, but you can't really say it's broken because it's not a million people over the course of 10 years trying to paint the same painting and some of them doing other things and bringing different brushes. And it's, it's just the art form creates this level of stress and strain on the art in a way that other art forms don't do that because they don't admit to a zillion different creators in the way that role-playing games do. Right. Well, there is, of course, one much bigger game industry that grew out of this one, the uh, computer game industry. Yeah. And and there, <laughs> even though they have an extra zero on the end of their budget and their staff, or possibly Many a more couple zeros. extra ones, <laughs> games can come out and literally break. They yeah. can just fail to operate utterly. And so if this is something that, you know, as... The scale scales up. Uh, that problem is, isn't solved. It's sometimes uh, kind of multiplied by uh, technical limitations. So the solution to wanting to make sure that a game uh, won't break is to play test it and also to select the other end of the axis, which is uh, having a, a relatively flat power up curve. And so uh, the gumshoe games are a big example of that where, you know, my feeling for most game genres is I'm, I'd be lucky if I can get someone to obsessively play my game for three or four years. And if I want to make them do that, I'll give them a bunch of different flavors of yellow king yep, <laughs> rather than having a, a power curve. And so if that is relatively flat and you don't get radically different, you can maybe add new things and swap out a new ability or, you know, kind of fine tune it, but you're not having a radically different experience at yep. the table. You're, not going to have a, 
a game that breaks in that way. Sometimes, uh, as a emulative purist, I think to myself, well, you know what? Characters who radically increase in power over the course of their adventures are almost non-existent in the genres that we're emulating. There's a couple of exceptions that prove the rule, but mostly adventurous characters start out super awesome and remain that way. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes I will say, well, you know what? This game just doesn't need advancement at all. You're super cool from the jump and you keep on being super cool. And then I try to make that happen. And then players say, no, we don't like that. <laughs> we we want to feel we want to get goodies at the end, and we want to move things around in our character sheets. So. This this is this is the uh, settler effect of a game being invented in America. I think an art form being invented in America. If you if you're not getting promoted, it just doesn't feel like you're accomplishing anything somehow. Yes, where's my positive evaluation? Right, where's my where's my bigger house, my nicer sword? Uh, th- there was a, an, an effect that happened an awful lot during the D twenty boom of games that would come out to emulate something or other, some genre, some set of activities, often the introduction of gunpowder weapons to F20, uh, or to, in this case, D20, kind of ruins everything, as it, of course, does. As Ariosto told you it would in 1500, why didn't you listen to him then? <laughs> yeah, there's a big thing that happened in actual history when yeah, people called guns. Ruining medieval times. But the, This uh, reality is broken. Yeah, I don't, I don't get it. My armor doesn't work anymore. This is stupid. I don't want to play. So a lot of the, the games would literally say, to do this kind of gaming, start the characters at third level or start the characters at fifth level. And my response was always, why are you doing this? <laughs> why do you roll up your character at first level then? If you've already admitted nothing works and your character will just be mowed down like an animal, just literally generate a character that begins at the equivalent of fourth level see how that goes for you but of course my words fall on deaf ears it's it's hell robin being right all the time because you know what isn't right all the time the rest of the universe and speaking of the rest of the universe i think that it would like uh, a word in edgewise possibly in the form of an ad and then in the form of a different and more savory hut Dracula is not a novel. We know this. It's the after-action report of a failed British intelligence attempt... To recruit a vampire, yeah, yeah, we've been through all this. And the Dracula Dossier Director's Handbook has more secrets, more dangers, more mysteries... For players and directors to explore together, we did a year's worth of ads about it. But it doesn't have Varna. It doesn't have the Ring of Dracula either, or 13th Age-style icons, or Bibliomancy. Or a Hand of Glory, or Red Mercury, or hard-won advice and actual play reports. If only someone could gather up all that material that you and Gareth wrote after the fact. Someone has. You made Gar do it, didn't you? We've assembled. Gar has assembled. The cuttings from the dossier have been assembled into a 50-page PDF. Available free with a special offer from the Pelgrane store. Just buy a print copy of the Director's Handbook standalone. Or the Dracula Dossier Core Bundle, the Director's Handbook and Dracula Unredacted in print. Or the Dracula Dossier Starter Kit Bundle, the Knight's Black Agent's Core Book, the Director's Handbook, and Dracula Unredacted in print. Get 25% off any of those print bundles, plus the PDF versions, and the cuttings from the Dossier PDF, entirely free. 
with the code VAMP2021. And don't worry, original Kickstarter backers, the Cuttings PDF will mystically appear in your Pelgrane store bookshelves without further expenditure. Do nothing, Kickstarter backers. All others use code VAMP2021 for plenty of savings and lots of cuttings. Oh boy, I'm uh, I'm kind of weaving on my feet. I'm in an unfamiliar town, and uh, I'm with a whole bunch of buddies, and we're bonding together. And uh, boy, I've maybe misjudged the amount of uh, alcohol I could consume, but thank goodness there's a food hut out on the horizon because Ken, we are in the food hut at the behest of beloved Patreon backers Jeremy French and Bryce Perry, who picked up my cue and decided to ask more about archetypal drunk food of uh, different nations, and specifically why Canada does not have a nationwide drunk food. And so before we get to that, Ken, you have gone all around the world and figured out what many of the other uh, drunk foods that are the equivalent of kebab in the UK and Germany and uh, the White Castle that we originally came Mm -hmm. up with this topic in uh, response to in parts of the U.S., you found drunk foods around the world. I did. And I want to just start by saying, to my estimation, it looks like drunk food is basically street food in that it is food that you can get without looking, and it is food that is available late at night when you've left the bar. And with that in mind, there is some foods that are archetypically considered drunk foods in various cultures. My apologies to various drunks listening to us from other cultures who are mad that I got their drunk food wrong. You were drunk. You forgot. Uh, so in Thailand, they have a, uh, a, a fried rice called uh, cow, cow fat that seems to be their drunk food. In the Philippines, there is a dish called sisig, which is made of pig's head, liver, chili, and calamansi fruit. So I assume that the end result is a sort of sweet and savory with a spicy kick to it. Spicy food is often drunk food uh, in cultures that enjoy spice because it wakes you back up. To that end, in Mumbai, the drunk food is like a spicy, peppery, garam masala-y scrambled eggs in biscuit called burji pav. I will bet you money that in Mumbai, people eat uh, onion bhaji a lot as drunk food because it is amazingly greasy and delicious, and you can get that on the street as well. In Kenya, there's a coconut donut called the mandazi, which is the other form of drunk food, the drunk food that simply absorbs all of the liquor in your stomach into its doughy ball and then just yeah, sits so there. A rare sweet item on this list. Yeah. Brazil has the acaraje, which is a black-eyed pea fritter, sometimes filled with some kind of paste, meat paste, vegetable paste, shrimp paste. Uh, Italy, of course, the porchetta sandwich. You have the perfect street food. It's also the perfect drunk food. Why not? Uh, North China has a filled savory crepe called the John Bing that is now in Chinese diaspora cities all over the world. Prague's uh, is something called smazeni sear, which is a deep fried breaded cheese with tartar sauce. Again, sort of getting around to that absorby part of the, of the world. And of course, in Sri Lanka, they have the same drunk food they have in half of Austin, Texas, which is in Sri Lanka, it's called kotu. In Texas, it's called migas and it's scrambled eggs with a bunch of usually vegetables, always chilies and spices. And then In Sri Lanka, it's fried roti, and in Texas, it's tortilla chips. So it's basically scrambled eggs with chips, vegetables, and and chili. 
Korea, of course, the best of countries. What a country. We love Korea. They have a whole word for drunk food called Anju. And I cannot in one segment do justice to the number of things Koreans demand that you eat while drunk. I will say that if you go to the Wikipedia page for Anju, they have it sorted by what you drank before as to what you should be eating now. So like if you had beer, uh, then you want tikkabaki, which is little uh, simmered rice cakes with some, you know, flavorings on it. Uh, if you've been drinking soju, on the other hand, then you want budai jigai, which is a spicy sausage stew, which is basically looks like an amazing Korean version of like crossed feijoada and cassoulet. It looks insane, uh, super good. And then uh, lots of other things that you could be eating at various times, uh, depending again on how drunk you are and what you got drunk on. I do want to mention that there is a typical Korean drunk food. Then this goes out, of course, to beloved Patreon listener and our colleague Darcy Ross called Gobanji Muchim or moon snail salad, which is moon snails and uh, red spicy sauce. And uh, then mushed up with probably uh, kimchi and, and some kind of rice or, or other uh, carb. So, again, sold in a, a tortilla or a, or, a, or a bread thing sometimes. Sometimes just sold in a little plate that you eat on the street with a crummy plastic spoon. Uh, it sounds wonderful. And it certainly is an idea that I'm so drunk I could eat a spicy snail is just a normal <laughs> thing that you I'll do. I will seek out a spicy snail. I will seek out the, the spicy snails. So that's, that's my sort of global survey. I will say that in America, the drunk food does vary regionally, just as in China and other very large countries with a lot of different street foods. In Austin, the actual drunk food tends more to be burritos. I've been drunk in Austin. That seems to be the, the thing that you gravitate to in Chicago, of course. Hot dogs. There's hot dog carts and hot dog stands everywhere. So we're doing hot dogs. We're doing uh, Italian beefs because, again, they're open 24 hours and there's one <laughs> basically every other street. So you can always find uh, something like that. So really, drunk food comes down to street food that is either doughy enough to soak up the alcohol or spicy enough to wake you up or in some cases all three right and here's where i just draw a distinction between the food that you eat while you are drunk uh -huh. and drunk food right uh, and also uh food as in anju that you eat while you're drinking uh and so when i think of the social phenomenon of people rhapsodizing together about the kebab they've had in years past or the delirious look that people get in their eyes recalling White Castle, which, of course, is, as, as discussed, <laughs> a actively terrible, but people love it because of the Literally delirious, <laughs> the social experience of going drunk together to a White Castle. Mm -hmm. Your adventures have not fully ended. You're still drunk. You're drunk together. And there's that social bonding effect that's going on. And I think... This may be a, a dude phenomenon, uh, predominantly, if not exclusively, that it's part of male bonding. And so that's what I'm thinking about when I'm thinking about this sort of uh, drunk food. And so that's when we get to Canada and thinking about how there's I've just never seen a Canadian group of Canadian people rhapsodizing about that time. They all went out to this place to, to get Tim bits or whatever. And it was yeah. some sort of hallmark of their friendship together. They uh, got this food. And part of that that is. Here's going to step back. If you ever want to cheat on an essay question about Canada, boy, do I, the answer is regionalism. <laughs> so Canada, like China, like the U S 
is not just large and divided up into all sorts of regions, but they're little regional enclaves spread out along the ribbon of the border, essentially. And so there are provinces or places that have paradigmatic drunk foods. In uh, uh, Newfoundland, which is a, a cold and miserable place where there's nothing uh, really to do other than drink together with your buddies, the place you go afterwards is a fish and chip shop. Right. And that is possibly because of the Anglo-Irish roots of Newfoundland, possibly the closest to uh, pub culture and, and the kebab that we would uh, find in Canada. So there is one uh, item that has uh, managed to propagate partway across the country or in dots across the country, and that is the Halifax Donaire. This is a modified gyro, which was altered in the 70s in uh, Halifax, Nova Scotia, by a Greek immigrant named Peter Gamalakos. And people in uh, conservative meat and potatoes, uh, Halifax, were a little leery of the uh, lamb in a pita. But he changed that out to uh, beef in a pita and also changed the sauce so that it was a sweet sauce. And therefore, the donaire became the, uh, the drunk food of Halifax. And then uh, later, it migrated to Calgary to Alberta in general, because uh, so many people came out from the East Coast to the oil patch to work in the oil industry. Mm -hmm. And so when you go to Calgary and walk around, you see Halifax Donaires advertised everywhere, like at the gas station. And there isn't even a vibrant street culture there, but there's certainly street sandwiches that you can uh, go and find uh, throughout there. But that hasn't propagated through the rest of the widely separated country uh, in a Montreal, it might be poutine. I was going to say. it might just be that your drunk food in Montreal is breakfast because you don't stop drinking. Right, yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's 4 a.m. What do you mean? What do you mean we stop drinking and go and eat somewhere? What are you talking about? This, this is when I, uh, you know, figured out in my own personal drunk food pantheon, my best drunk food has always been diner breakfast. Right. And by diner, I also include your Denny's and your whatever else's your garbage places that no one would go sober. But yeah, you're, you're still drinking. You're in a civilized city that doesn't have bar hours. It just sort of, you know, eventually you stagger out around three or four in the morning and then the diner's open. You go there and you eat breakfast. And that used but to I've be. I've never heard anyone go, Oh, the fried eggs we had together. Right, yeah. Oh, Denny's. It, it was, it was, it, it's, it's a different vibe. There is, I've heard plenty of people reminiscing about being drunk in a Denny's. That is a cultural bond for people throughout mid America. I promise you. My, my thought was though that Canada has to my mind a perfect candidate for national drunk food. And that's poutine. Poutine is tasty. It's sold everywhere in many parts of Canada. It, soaks up the alcohol like nobody's business. And it's something that weirdly only Canadians make, despite it being obviously delicious. And so I'm wondering what is wrong with the rest of Canada that it's not just picked up poutine and decided that's our drunk food. Is it regional anger at uh, Quebec? Uh, what's going on? It's delivery system. Right. So uh, the thing about Canada and particularly if something doesn't really like Toronto has all of these foods, but none of them have that, cachet. And part of that is because, like most of the rest of the country, Toronto gets very cold yeah, in the winter. Yeah. No the one's time staggering when on the streets drunk at night. They freeze yeah. to death. They're drunk so food. So does is... it really have street food? Yeah. Uh, it certainly has restaurants that stay open, but it doesn't, you know, there aren't poutine carts. And part of that 
is due to the strong efforts of the uh, restaurant uh, lobbying industry to make sure that there is no street food in Toronto except for hot dog carts. Yeah. Chicago has the same situation where even food trucks face a very uphill battle in Chicago. Food trucks have been very carefully kept out of becoming omnipresent here. Yeah. And so what happens instead is that in Toronto, you uh, have not food that you go to eat after being drunk, but you're in a bar that stays open and, unlike a lot of English pubs, keeps the kitchen open until like an hour before closing time. Right. So that you're uh, doing more of the Anjou thing, except with potato skins and a plate of fries for the table, mm -hmm. than going out to an another location. There's no White Castle that you go to. Right. You eat your drink food while you're drinking. And I think the real drunk food of uh, Toronto, in keeping with the fact that we're an unfriendly lot in a cold climate, is pizza delivery to the apartment you go to after the bar. Yeah. And that, again, remember that pizza we had at your place is not something not the same you thing. hear people say. They don't rhapsodize about it. And it's certainly not the same thing as remember that New York slice. You know, if you're drunk in Manhattan or uh, I assume anywhere in the in the five boroughs, you can find a pizza joint, buy a slice and eat it on the street with your drunken friends. And that feels like a thing in a way that, as you say, remember that time we all went back to your place and ordered pizza doesn't really feel like a thing. Right. And in fact, our favorite pizza place is just around the corner. So uh, during the pandemic, I've been going over there to, to pick up and they're really suffering because the students have been out of school. And during that time, 4 a.m. used to be their peak time. And now yeah. 11 p.m., they're done and they're just barely hanging on by their fingernails. So there's a lot of late night pizza being consumed uh, here in Toronto, but not in that bonding drunk food sort of way. And uh, perhaps even in mixed groups, which I think tend to be more the group of people who go drinking together here in Toronto and doesn't have the same bonding dynamic about later being extremely nostalgic about horrible food that you ate together. Yeah, because ideally you're nostalgic about the band you saw or some you're you're nostalgic about that part as opposed to, you know, the the conclusion. Well, I mean, we could uh rhapsodize, I suppose, all day about various burritos that you and I have consumed or whatever, but rather than do that, let's stagger into the night, order pizza to be delivered to our houses and uh see if there's another hut around the corner from this ad. The Best of Ask Fageln is now available at Drive-Thru RPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush 
Rush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Make sure this podcast doesn't break by joining such beloved Patreon backers as... Sean Hoyle. Randy Ship, Ryan Lassiter. Tenant Reed. And Aryan Poutsma. The non-Euclidean corners, the weird smell of fetor, and the slime all over the bottom of it. Welcome us, if that's the word I want to use. <laughs> Draw us reluctantly into. <laughs> Suck us into the vortex of uh, the Mythos Hut. It's simultaneously the newest of our huts and the most ageless and primordial. And in the Mythos Hut, we have been building our own Mythos God, because that has never gone wrong in any of the source material, as far as I know, right, Robin? It won't appear and eat our heads. It can't happen. It's that would be that would up. be uh, not just uh, bad. It would be bad writing, and we won't allow that. So uh, previously, we've talked about the the nature of the mythos gods and what they all have in common as entities, and then uh, we went through the existing first rank and figured out where there was a hole, and now we're building out. Our God, Robin, so catch us up, won't you? Right. So our concept is that this cosmic uh, deity that reflects the indifference of the cosmos is tied into a forbidden, a forgotten, or repressed thought. And we have toyed with the idea of this possibly being a deity that the Yithians uh, once worshipped or propitiated or tried to avoid, something that they have a relationship with. Uh, we're not married to that necessarily, but I guess our question is why why is this terrifying? Why is the idea of a a thought that has been banished but is rising up within us? Why is that scary, and therefore, what would that deity begin to do in the universe and and uh, possibly look like? Well, I mean, I think first of all, if you want to sort of get basic about it, the notion of the taboo thought, the forgotten repressed truth is that if you accepted it, it remakes you, it changes you. So if you think, oh, I'm, you know, not into feet, I just like looking at volleyball, and then you realize that you have the forbidden foot fetish, then if you allow it, suddenly, you know, your your life is defined by feet. And that seems unsanitary, first of all, but it also, it changes you from the person that you wanted to be or thought you were to this new, perhaps alien form. And you can, of course, fill in any number of taboos, social, cultural, religious, sexual, philosophical. I think if it's too sexy, then we're back in Yilgalanak turf. So what we can use is an abstraction from the real thing that we're talking about. What if I'm actually just as racist as Lovecraft? Instead, you're thinking, what if I've learned the uh, forgotten chants of the doles? And now that, I, now that I know them, my mind is changing and I'm beginning to perceive things as a dole might. And yes, I get it. It's a bowl, but also there's the dole chants. So get off my back, footnoters. And so I have this knowledge that is possibly alien knowledge because it's from another planet or whatever, or from pre-human times. And to know it. Uh, rewrites you in the way that uh, the strong Sapir Whorf theory is that if you don't know the language for something, you don't 
perceive it. And if you do know the language for something, you can't help but perceive it in that context. So this is sort of the, and again, in a classic Lovecraftian way, you're taking a sort of a pseudoscientific concept and spinning it around so it's scary. So rather than theosophy, this would be, you know, Sapir-Whorfian neurolinguistics is our pseudoscience right. so that we're the, playing with. The fear is a fear of a loss of self. Right. That you have an identity that you have and you're attached to, and that's you, that's who you are, that's, and therefore you believe that you have free will and are yourself and are, and, and value that. And here's this thought, this idea, this concept that can reverse everything, could turn that on your head, can not only take away your self-control, but even your very identity of who you are, something that can rewrite you. And that's getting a little close to King in Yellow, but King in Yellow is sort of off to a little bit of an annex in uh, the mythos, and we can make sure we go in a different direction. So right. It's not about yeah. reading a play. There's a, a fundamental set of facts about you that you are afraid of that can be activated by this deity. So do we want to treat the thought itself like the colorative space, like something that is indefinable and indescribable and uh, that until you encounter it, it cannot be rendered and it can be referred to in a story or in a scenario, but not actually specified as what it is. Yeah. I think, I think that that, that is classic uh, mythos tech is to take the thing, whether it be Carcosa or the color out of space or the angles that you can't perceive for Dale off. And yeah, that it's a thing that if you, if we, if we could tell you what it is, we'd be turning you into it, right? We can't use that. And I also want to say that this notion is part of what makes it so scary to the Ithians because it's a thing that happens in your mind, right? It's not the forbidden blood necessarily that happens to Dagon cultists and uh, turns them into deep ones. Although of course it draws power from that because the whole mythos, part of the power of it is the lack of boundaries and defined you're the God of love, but you're the God of war. You don't have that with the mythos. Everyone's a God of Ugh. And so it, it works out, but it's mental. So even though the Ithians are bopping from body to body, if they're contaminated by this God, they bring it with them. And that is, of course, because they're great. Their whole civilization is about running away from problems, <laughs> right? And, and so if they can't do that with this, that I think makes it both scary and attractive to the Ithians in a way that it might not be, although it obviously is scary and attractive, even to human sorcerers who think, Ooh, I could rewrite myself and become as a God and then read the fine print and <laughs> regret that choice uh, or don't. But, but I feel like that really ties it nicely to, to our putative Yithian God in a way, right? Because it's, and it's, it's, it's the old, you know, try not to think of a white elephant situation. Well, now you can't. This, uh, white elephant god is, you know, he's there. He's a, he's a meme. He's a jingle. Uh, it's like the, uh, Kuttner story about the little tune that gets in your head and, and ruins your con your ability to concentrate that brought down Hitler in the, um, uh, nothing but gingerbread left is the name of the Kuttner story. And there's other great ideas of sort of, memes that rewrite you my own madnastasia for gerps built on you know burroughs's notion that language is a disease language is a poison this is the same thing except it's the thought it's the set of mental constructs the way you look at the world it's an it, it's not even an ideology so much as it is the new way that uh, will reveal to you the uh the hideous outside truth so what i'm thinking is that this is our god is the first thought the primordial thought the original right. thought that gave birth to this corrupt and horrible universe 
it is the Big Bang, but it turns out that it's a, a malign Big Bang because of right. the first thought was that existence was possible. And the second thought, uh, perhaps it's the, this is the God of the second thought, the thought that because existence was possible, that it would have to be destroyed. Mm-hmm. And so it is the, the thing that came into being, the adherents of this deity uh, then claim, of course, well, naturally, uh, this God spawned Cthulhu and Azazoth and Yogg-Sothoth. It's the uh, original God. And I'm going to, I've just been putting together some syllables that I have here in front of me. And I'm going to, for the moment, refer to this God as Kothanurian in order to have a thing that we can say instead of just this God. So Kothanurian is the original first thought, the act of malign uh, creation, its creation in order to destroy. And so this is why the Yithians uh, fear Kothanurian. And there's not enough female deity, so let's call her uh, her, that she uh, came into existence in order to destroy existence. She is. <laughs> there you go, ladies. <laughs> That's the representation you've wanted. <laughs> well, th- well, that gets into a whole other segment of whether people want to be represented in monstrous <laughs> form, form or not. Only, uh, if only dudes get to be uh, evil deities, uh, but that, that's a separate uh, thought, I think. Yep, but not a forbidden one. Not a forbidden one. The problem with this, with Kothanurian is that you don't even realize that she exists. You can perceive the other ones, and then th- even the existence of her is a horrible shock. Just to know that she's around rewrites you, because you then know that you were created only to be destroyed. Not that you are created and then are destroyed, but that you were created in order for that to happen. And as soon as you know that she exists, you know that you are going to be destroyed. Or or you know that you are created to be destroyed. You've become a destroying angel. I mean, I, you have to also look at these beings from the perspective of, you know, why would someone want to uh, study the scrolls of Kothanurin? If they've heard the hints of Kothanurin's existence, why are they pursuing it? And the notion is, oh, you become a harbinger of uh, destruction. And that's what you, your your drive is, right? You're some sort yeah. of horrific it's, nihilist. Can't beat him, join him, or yeah, exactly. if you do enough destroying for Kothanurin, your own destruction is postponed or is somehow ecstatic because you're bracing your destruction. Oh, yeah. you, you are destroyed by joining with, with her in oblivion and, and, and ecstasy, I feel like, is, is the notion that if you're uh, fundamentally the self-hating kind of person who becomes a mythos magician, everything you're doing is maybe a fairly extended suicide note. So this is sort of the big dramatic version of that. The, if I, if I can't be in the world, no one gets to be in the world sort of attitude. And I, I feel like there's, there's some strong psychological stuff you can play with, with the villains again, without making it too much like, Oh, you're looking for the forbidden geometry. You want Daloth. You're looking for the forbidden sex. You want Yagalanek. You're looking at your forbidden ancestry. You want Dagon, you know, this adds a, a a sort of a different vibe to it. It's it's uh it's that Lovecraftian you know urge to oblivion that he celebrates repeatedly in his work, but now it has a cool name and scares the Ithians. So so far, I think we're doing right. good. Uh, so let's go through our, our checklist of elements that we identified in the first segment of this series. Cosmic scale. She's the Big Bang. We've got that. Yep, absolutely. Uh, anthro decentralizing existence only exists in order to be destroyed. Therefore, humans are just a footnote on that. So we've got that. Yep. Receives uh, worship. We've identified that as well, that uh, people uh, who uh, stumble across evidence of her existence either choose to fight or they choose to embrace destruction and to spread destruction. And the next uh, we come up to is a horrible animal hybrid, but the animal hybrid part of that is just because it's indescribable. So what 
physical form, uh, once you discover that Cofinurin uh, exists, uh, what does uh, does she kind of look like? I'm kind of thinking uh, we're going to go for, you know, super primordial things. So do we want to have a, you know, a part trilobite, part nudibranch? I kind of like the idea of the trilobite as the center of it, the or or something off the Burgess Shale. If you want to get even crazier, uh, I'm thinking that one of the guises that she tr- moves through the the human sphere in is as uh, you know that they say that uh, the memory of owls or of birds generally is a screen memory, and if you see birds suddenly flock for no reason, that's a sign that you're living in the simulation. Or if you've had UFOs contact you, you remember only owls. And I like the notion that we don't see Kothanurin's true form. We see her and remember her because we can't remember the forbidden memory as owls. So the notion that it's like an owl or a flock of birds, but also a trilobite, I feel like now we're getting into that is it what's exactly going on type catacresis that a proper Lovecraftian phenomenon has? And, and so I would say, you know, something that would be the screen memory of Kothanurin is part of the experience of seeing Kothanurin, right? Right. And part owl, part trilobite is an exciting combo. We know that uh, owl hybrids can also be very entertaining when you fuse them with bears. Mm-hmm. I'm going to want another level of, of unease and horror in the visualization. And I'm just going to go... Uh, given the metaphor here and, and given current events, I'm going to stick viral spirochetes uh, from right. her. So there's also uh, viral blobs, giant uh, microbes that have uh, achieved cosmic scale uh, pulsing from her feathery trilobite uh, beaked form. And, and and the way that you, uh, so she's surrounded by this cloud of, of, of viral particles and spirochetes. And then sort of the the metaphor of embracing her is not, reading a play, but it's sort of um, inhaling the infection, right? That you're like, I'm welcoming this into me. Yes. To she rewrite goes far me the way that uh, retroviruses Disturbing do. or bad art. Right, yeah. And in human name, we've got that already. Mm-hmm. Um, I might want to play with my letters here a bit more to uh, make them uh, harder to say. Yeah, spell it, you know, more exotically. Uh, I have a C here. I'm going to probably want to replace that with a KH just for... Or a Q, you know? Yeah. And finally, we come to the one thing we haven't hit is, or have we, a pliable concept of paradoxical unease. Well, I think uh, we do have that because yeah, that's the, it's central to the concept, right? The thought is hard to pin down. It's impossible to describe. And it is paradoxical in that it is unknowable thing that we, that its victims or its propagators have suddenly come to know. Yeah, that it's, you know, the, the act of knowing about it is what causes it. And that's the paradox, right? You can't. You know, the, the people who are totally safe from Kothanurin are the people who never bother to think about Kothanurin. And once you've opened the question of, you know, what is a forgotten thought? It's that same, you know, again, are we the, you know, butterfly dreaming you're a Zen master, or a Zen master dreaming is a butterfly. Where, where does this truth happen? Once I've thought a forbidden thought, in what sense is it forbidden now? Is it, right. you know, it's part of me. I can't unthink it or right. can and I? Listeners may be thinking that this is a new mythos deity, but in fact, I think if they check their records, they will realize that this mythos deity has been part of the mythos all along. All along. And if they don't find any evidence of that in their internet searching, that's just all the more confirmation. So uh, next week, we'll be back uh, in the mythos hunt once again to take Kothanurin and think about what the uh, story will be, the fictional narrative that will introduce Kothanurin 
to a, a waiting uh, and terrified world. The, the sort of Ur story of Cthulhuin, in the way that Call of Cthulhu is the Ur story of Cthulhu, or whatever. Exactly so. Delta Green Black Sites collects terrifying Delta Green operations previously published only in PDF or in standalone paperback modules. They lock bystanders and agents alike in unlit rooms with the cosmic terrors of the unnatural. By masters of top-secret mythos horror, Dennis Detweller, Adam Scott Glancy, Shane Ivy, and Caleb Stokes. In PX Poker Night, discontented Air Force members listen to the night sky and hear secrets not meant for human ears. In Kali Gotti, a Delta Green operative goes missing from a combat base in the Afghanistan war. The Last Equation, a gifted university student guns down a family of total strangers, leaving behind a string of numbers that fills Delta Green's researchers with dread. Lover in the Ice, a bitter Midwestern winter shuts down a city and awakens a threat that is all too ready to spread. Sweetness, vandalism of a family home twigs Delta Green to mythos danger. Hourglass, a woman vanishes screaming in front of dozens of witnesses in a small Oregon town. Ex Oblivione, crazed words scrawled at a crime scene hint at Yohannath Lai and the sea. The child, a traumatized child looks to the agents for protection from voices that never cease. Delta Green Black Sights is a full-color 208-page hardback. Grab it now before it grabs you. It's time once more to enter that most ill-defined of huts, the hut where the paranormal meets the crackpot and the uh, unlikely uh, meets uh, misreporting. Uh, we look out the window, and there's the alien big cat screaming out of the moors. He's screaming, you finally gave me a segment. Thank you. Uh, in the corner there, uh, we have uh, the uh, gray alien and the Nordic alien drinking a kombucha. And they're in a very familiar-looking cafe because I'm, oh, wow, I think they're on Queen Street here in Toronto because, believe it or not, it has taken us all this time to get to a story about a tulpa created in Toronto, and that is the Philip experiment. Uh, and that just goes to show that I'm saving some topics for later still. Yeah, that's what it goes to show. So, Ken, in September 1972, a bunch of people got together and decided to create a ghost. They were members of the Toronto Society for uh, Paranormal Research and also their own overlapping group, the New Horizon Research Foundation, which if you want a Cronenbergy sounding organization... Yeah, you, that doesn't sound like 70s Toronto at all. <laughs> you can't... <laughs> You can't do any better than that. And so you can introduce us to the cast of characters who instead of they made up a character, but instead of playing him in a LARP, they brought him to quasi-existence. Quasi-existence. And accent, as always, is on the quasi. Uh, the person whose brainchild, literally this was, is a parapsychologist slash mathematical ge geneticist named George Owen 
uh, or ARG Owen, if you're using his initials, and a psychologist named Dr. Joel Whitten. And I assume that these guys are the SPR types. And their goal was to recruit a bunch of people who are at least interested in psychic phenomenon, but none of whom consider themselves mediums or sensitives or any kind of magic woo, that they're just normal Tarantonians like you might see in any Cronenberg film. So they <laughs> yeah, get a, a few of them have like things growing out of them, but yeah. they're, they're wearing seventies clothes to cover them up. Exactly. The, the horrible sweater distracts from it. So you have Owen's wife, Iris, you have the uh, former chairperson of Mensa in Canada. Talk about two strikes. No lady named Margaret Sue Sparrow, an industrial designer named Andy, his wife, Lorne, a heating engineer named Al Peacock, an accountant, a bookkeeper, and a sociology student, Sydney, the youngest of our, our seance crew, because that's yes. basically what they did. So, so clearly a player character group with a couple right. too many players. Very much that, you know, someone brought their friend and you can't just kick him out. So you're like, why don't you play the, I don't know, a uh, heating engineer? And there we are. And so the, they ask Sue, uh, because they don't want to tamper with it to invent a historical personage who they will summon the ghost of. So the goal is, can you see the ghost? This is all about ghosts for them. Can you see the ghost of someone that you know is fictional? I would have thought just go to fricking, you know, Baker Street and see Sherlock Holmes and your problems are solved. But nope, they want to do a a test run with this guy. Yes, they, they never use the word tulpa, although, of no. course, the ghost of someone who is fictional is a tulpa. Literally a tulpa. Yeah. So Sue comes up with a guy named Philip Aylesford, born at 1624. He is an English royalist, fights in the Civil War. He's knighted in 1640, spies for Charles II. After the, the war is over, lives in his uh, manor in Warwickshire, the actually existing Diddington Manor. Uh, he is married to a frigid Puritan woman, which is a tr- slander against uh, Puritan women, first of all. But right. it's- you can tell this is the 70s because women are still being characterized as frigid, yes. which is not something you would have if you invented this ghost today. No, no. In this in this day, the, the ghost would be a girl boss ghost. But uh, Dorothea was her name. Her marriage to Philip Aylesford was unhappy because of her uh, reluctance to offer him physical love. And so he has an affair with a Roma woman, as we say now, not what they said in 1972, because that is an ethnic slur. Uh, her name is Margot. And then Dorothea found out about the affair. Margot was living in the barn behind Diddington Manor. Dorothea discovers that her husband is carrying on, denounces her for witchcraft. She's burned at the stake. As a result, Philip Aylesford walks the battlements of Diddington Manor until he throws himself from them and kills himself at the age of 30 in 1654. And this is the fictional biography, basically, that Sue comes up with. And it is, as you can tell, uh, sort of a, you know, bodice ripper romance cover story. It's um, barely even a person. So good job on the artificialness. And so they first begin by sitting in a well-lit room because they're thinking we want to summon ghosts in the most um, scientific circumstances we can. We want to film them. We want to figure out all this stuff about ghosts. And they meditate on Philip Aylesford for a good long time. They shift their position. Sometimes they meditate on a metal tube that they name Philip Aylesford for some reason. <laughs> that does not work. <laughs> He's not described otherwise as being a metal tube. It's yeah. yeah. And in 1973, after about a year of this, they think, well, this is getting us nowhere. Owen reads 
a report by a guy named Batchelder who has gone through the uh, actual records of 19th century spiritualist seances and has figured out sort of the standard practices for spiritualist seances. And what they were was not deadly, dull Toronto academic staring at each other. They were people getting together. They'd sing some hymns. They'd get into a vibe. The lights would go down. They had a light table, not a big, heavy academic table. Yeah, and they decided to uh, abandon their solemn attitude for a jovial attitude. Exactly. To sort of be together. And by now, they've been, you know, they're friends. They've been meeting, you know, once a week or however often to try and summon up Philip and have done nothing about it. Every now and again, someone says, I, I think I sensed Philip. And then everyone looks at them and they say, I, I don't know if I did. So once they introduce a light, easily thrown around table and darkness, guess what happens, Robin? <laughs> guess what happens? It's, it's a card table. Uh, yeah. Spoiler alert. It's literally a card table. The table starts moving and they start hearing raps and not the urban street poetry. They hear actual knocking. And by actual knocking, I mean not actual knocking, obviously, but they hear knocking. And so it's a yes, no code with the raps. They never think of a Ouija board for some dumb reason. So it's all yeses and nos. And then Philip expresses his personality through the eagerness or reluctance with which he raps his yes or his no. And the table goes up on one side and it's scoots around the room and everyone's super vibed and weirded out about it. And they start asking him for details of his life. And according to them, he provides nothing that one of them hadn't already suggested. Or if he does, it's something that is usually checkable and wrong. So there does not seem to be a genuine Philip Aylesford out there in, in the 17th century who is coming forward in time, but they have developed something. And indeed the poltergeist phenomena for if it is real, that's what this is. Follow some of them home. So the general approach is we won. Did we do it? They never film a ghost. They never see a ghost. They film some of the wrapping and table moving, but the levitation, you know what, Robin, they all levitate, but they never catch it on film because right. it's too dark. Go figure. But most importantly, they ask Philip what his favorite songs are, and he tells them by rapping. Mm -hmm. And then uh, later they play the songs and he raps along. Right. So that's fun. <laughs> like, tell me what non-fictional ghost does that. Right. Exactly. That's uh, that's Betelgeuse, Robin. That's just, you know singing the uh, banana boat song. Right. Anyway, they uh, become sort of a deal. They go on local TV, uh, which is uh, ironically called global TV and they perform. Is that the word they're summoning on stage? Then they also have a recreation of the thing. Then there's some actual footage, I guess that they filmed during the seance, which was of course murky and hard to see because you know, dark and seance. Yeah. So, so you can dial this up on YouTube under the name, the Philip experiment. And it's some, uh, footage from a local network called Global TV from the early days, and it's a retrospective piece looking back on the 70s, although the clothing they're wearing in the most theatrical, most staged version of the recreation is very 70s, so I don't know whether they got their clothes out of the closet for these terror. The, the scariest thing is the size of the men's collars on the yeah. men's shirts. It just might've been still the seventies in Toronto deep into the eighties though. I mean, like it was in Oklahoma. Yes, that would, that was the other theory I was going to get to, but at any, any rate, and then there's some actual clearly super eight footage from that time. And also then another recreation of the earlier stuff. And it has some talking heads. And one of the talking heads 
is Witten, who uh, was one of the original participants. So he's one of the people describing what happened. I, I think Witten would say he was never a participant. He was an observer. Just letting you know what Witten would say. Yes, Witten, of as course, he's, he's on full television of, talking about this. Full of beans, yes. as everyone is in this. But it's a big deal. It becomes a book called Conjuring Up Philip, written by uh, Iris Owen and Margaret Sue Sparrow. Uh, that's published in 1976. And the Toronto Society for the Psychic Research tries again with new groups. Uh, the new group, now that they have the methodology down, they've contacted their new ghost, Lilith, who is a French-Canadian spy who fought, I believe, and I you get two different versions of this online. The one that I like is that she was a French-Canadian spy who was with the French resistance and was executed by the Nazis. Uh, there's another one that says she's from the 18th century, so I don't know if people were working out their whole Plains of Abraham issues with each other. Right. Well, if I wanted a Québécois to be able to pass in France as French, I would put her as far back in history as I could because right. the languages diverge considerably. Well, then maybe maybe she was a spy for the French against uh, General Wolf, and that's what happened. I don't care, really, but they sum it up. Well, she's Lilith. fictional. She, she can also have continuity problems. Exactly. Yeah, like Batman. <laughs> Other similar experiments uh, conjured up Sebastian, a medieval alchemist, and in possibly the most fun one, uh, which I found no other data on, a guy named Axel who is from the future. So they've summoned a future tulpa, which opens up vistas like you wouldn't believe. And then other psychic experiment groups elsewhere tried their own versions. There's one in Sydney, Australia in 2001 called the Skippy Experiment, summed up a 16-year-old girl named Skippy Cartman who had been murdered by her teacher, the incredibly creatively named Brother Monk. So whoever's in Sydney <laughs> making up the backstory is like, ah! Well, again... These, these are LARP characters. They don't have to have right. good names. And, and, and then also it's, it's again, very clearly uh, from a, a paper thin fictional template. And then in 2004, the John Moore's University Psychology Department in Liverpool tried their own version of the Humphrey experiment. So every so often, some group of, I don't want to say people with no lives, but let's just say people around a university come up with an attempt to make a Philip and uh, summon it up. And I assume that in all the cases, once they start removing all the possible controls, Controls to not start mysterious wrapping and table movement. Sure enough, wrapping and table movement happens. And people who are kind say that this is a result of what's called the idiomotor phenomenon, where when you are thinking about a physical activity, you find yourself performing it unconsciously and don't remember it. So often that's what causes teen girls to move the planchette around at a, at a seance. They don't mean to, but they're, they're so excited and giddy and nervous that they uh, do it without thinking about it. And then you also got that as the explanation for some of the raps and table uh, knockings at seances, even because the terminology goes back to 1886. So I assume it was going to say what's going on at this seance since we don't believe it's ghosts. Uh, the other possibility is they didn't summon up a tulpa. They just attracted a poltergeist and poltergeists, of course, are attracted to unfulfilled or unmet sexual drives, which is why they hang around teenagers all the time. But in this case, Sue has uh, been meeting nothing but Mensa men in Toronto and oh, frigid Dorothea comes out of Sue's head. So Sue may have been the focus of a poltergeist because of her own issues. So that's your second possibility and your 
other possibility, of course, that they got bored and someone started knocking on the table and then they couldn't admit it once it became a big deal. And of course, also, yes, Tulpa, they made actually Philip Aylesworth and he showed up and goodness, what, what fun he was. So that's your, that's your story, Robin, of, uh, the Torontonian Tulpa, Philip. Right. And the uh, papers of the Owenses and the New Horizon Research Foundation are now at the University of Manitoba as part of their big paranormal and ufo uh, archive it's the the miskatonic of the prairies is that in in winnipeg robin the university of manitoba yes it is in winnipeg it turns out so there you go that's your i mean if guy madden plus canadian miskatonic isn't enough for you then we we shrug our shoulders we can't help you winnipeg is doing its part but what we we can help you do is put this into a scenario. So the right. the way I remembered this story, it was slightly more exciting. <laughs> I'm not going to say this is the Mandela effect. It's just me misremembering it. But I thought there were actual, that they started to spot Philip around town or people started to report the existence of, of Philip. But of course, in a scenario, that's what happens, right? right. There's, there's no conflict or danger if he's just hanging around knocking on tables, but he comes into existence and starts to do things either just using his poltergeist powers. And it could very well be that he is, uh, you know, he took his own life. He's uh, disappointed. He may be uh, looking for the descendant of uh, Dorothea. And uh, it may turn out that the people who thought that they were inventing Philip in our version of the story do later research and realize that there was a Dorothea. And uh, guess what? Uh, She's, uh, her descendants are uh, prominent Toronto residents. And oh, guess what else? Uh, bad things are happening. And so one version of this, the members of this group are literally the player characters. And this is the introductory session. And they go from uh, making up a tulpa to then uh, dealing with the tulpa. And then, you know, part two is some other Toronto paranormal thing of which there are a bunch, which I should maybe start salting into the show. Or uh, you're the outside investigators who are uh, brought in and you're, you know, you get to shake your head at these rubes for, you know, what did you bring in over the over the veil? Why did you do this? And they have to, you know, track down Philip and convince him he's fictional or, you know, find his family sword and uh, do something with it to somehow banish him. Yeah, I feel like it's more fun. I mean, the, the movies that have been made of the Philip experiment, the apparition uh, is one, and I believe the quiet ones both sort of take as movies often do the the whole fun part of this and ruin it by both having real people as the ghosts i think the whole fun of philip is that he's fictional that he's created that he's a tulpa and whether you retrocreated him and start seeing evidences of his existence start showing up where you know you've got a, a history book and there was no philip aylesford in it when you started and now he's in it that's scary and weird or there is a dorothea but she never married anyone and Philip is maybe someone that she wished she could marry, and her descendant Sue created Philip, thinking that she was making it up, but it's actually a channeled past projection from some past psychic, or whether it's just a cool tulpa. I feel like you can go any number of different directions with it and still get to the, you know, the the, the fun plasticity of reality that I think is the real bite in this, as opposed to just yet another ghost story. And so what you know, I think, you know, your Frankenstein version is, uh, Philip is, is there and he's, you know, mad and he starts haunting these seance guys and he says, summon up Margot. I want my true love. Make her real. And it, it's sort of the Frankenstein story. Make me a bride. And then you're thinking, oh, that doesn't sound good. 
uh, tulpas able to, you know, reproduce in Toronto or anywhere. Uh, I feel like that is another engine you can put into this is, uh, since, you know, Philip is obviously based on some forgotten Georgette Hire novel. You know, why not add a more powerful, more horrific fiction to it? And you can do this Philip experiment stuff. You can even, you know, move it into a, you know, it could be a fall of Delta Green thing or a 70s uh, Moondust Men thing where the group of wide collared psychics is trying to summon up a character from the fiction of Randolph Carter or whatever. And you know, no. And, uh, or they're trying to summon up someone that in the game world is fictitious. Let's pretend that there was a, uh, Rhode Island horror writer named HP Lovecraft. who knew all about the Cthulhu mythos. Let's create him and summon him up. And so then you can play with the irony of you, the player characters know that's a real person. And so the ability of the fictional characters to summon up a fictional real person, you know, you, you can get different layers on it. I feel like right. the unreality part is the best part. And, that's that should be at least somewhat present in any story version that you do. What I would be uh, tempted to do, uh, aside from the Lovecrafting angle, is to alter the backstory of Philip for the, these fictional purposes a little and, and say that he had a nemesis. And it was the, the nemesis, in fact, who killed him. He didn't uh, commit suicide. And so, therefore, that gives the players the horrible thought slash plan of, well, if we're going to get rid of Philip again, do we create a tulpa of his enemy, Sir Roderick. Right. Because it's always great to give the, the players a possible solution that also uh, might have massive blowback to it. Yes. And then sit back for a while and watch them argue about it. Hand, hand the players a loaded rocket launcher and say, maybe this will work. Yeah, that's uh, that, that's a strong possibility. Or the notion that we should summon up a, a, a foe to him. It, it doesn't even have to be that Sir Roderick killed him. Sir Roderick could be a, a roundhead, a guy that fought for Cromwell and was his opponent during the times of, of uh, the Civil War. And so he's like, oh, here's Sir Roderick back from the Civil War. And he's sort of a Matthew Hopkinsy type guy. I think if you want to push the players, though, in, into actually summon him, you have to specify that he killed him the first time. All right. You got to well, suck him in. You got to suck him in. I, I feel like there's there's ways and means you could do this. You could have, you know, while they're doing the seance, you start hearing from another ghost. And it's like, who are you? I am Roderick. I'm here to kill Philip. And it's like, oh, what the hell? And then you could, I mean, once they've experienced Roderick knocking or Ouija-ing or, or showing up on the EVP or whatever, then you can, I think you can plant that seed. This Tulpa will kill the other Tulpa. Nothing can go wrong without necessarily even changing the backstory of Philip that much. But changing the backstory should be done, obviously, because something, you know, your players may not vibe to Georgette higher. They may vibe to something else. So you want Philip to feel like something that they would want to see out in the world until they actually see him out in the world and say, oh, no, that's that's a terrible idea. What were we thinking? And you could upend it so that, you know, lovable Philip is just coming around grooving and knocking the music. And then he heads off into 1973 Toronto. You lose track of him. And then the worst being Roderick comes through the gate and you have to go find Philip in order to have Philip kill Roderick again. So right. you could do it that way as or well. Maybe, maybe Philip is, is here to kill Lilith or Sebastian or Axel, the ghost from the future. I feel like Axel, the ghost from the future has all kinds of options too, because what if he's like the Yithians and when he shows up, he can, you know, make an anti-gravity gun or something. Right. Axel goes from the future. sounds like a DC comic from that period. For right. Sure. Yeah. But absolutely. He used to uh, team up with space cabbie a lot. Right. So Philip from Toronto doesn't get to have a lot of drunk food. Uh, so, Ken, I got a big surprise for you. Uh, Toronto's most famous help of Philip is here. So, uh, Ken, do you have any questions for Philip? 
I, I guess what what was Charles II like, Philip? I'd, I'd like to know about that. Philip? Oh, I was afraid of this. He's he's a little Mike shy. Oh. You don't have any thoughts on... I think he's indicating that he was not that well-researched, but... Uh, and also, it turned, he's he's mad at Wordle. And <laughs> look, look I, we're just not going to get into this, Philip. Right. You know, we'll, we'll order in some pizza, but... I think this is it for for this episode. I think uh, if you're not going to talk on Mike, I think it's time for us to just uh, come back next week. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Askfagelm. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash canandrobin. Give this podcast the Halifax donaires it needs to survive by chipping in with kindly backers like... Brian Malcolm. Drew Eichholz. Daniel Markvig. Will Ferguson and Fifi Payat. And the Molten Sulphur Blog. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. With such eldritch designs as Cthulhu is woke. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs> <laughs>